This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's books and comic show i am only one of the hosts matthew rushing and with me as he is every week first the illustrious esquire dan gunther wow i you know you're really building me up here people are going to get disappointed i i don't know where i'm acquiring all these titles but uh you know you know what i'll i'll, I'll take them <laughs> well, you I don't know should. why I'm arguing, really. <laughs> I mean, I, somebody says something nice about you, you should probably just take it. You know, right, Bruce? Dan is the man. That's all I got to say. Yeah, see, there you go. And of course, everybody knows <laughs> the incredible, the talented, the amazing Bruce Gibson. Oh my gosh, now you're putting me on a pedestal there with Dan. Just not quite as high, but that's pretty good. Wow, you know, I, I have to say the Canadian me is just like really resisting this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, right oh there, eh? Um, maybe we should just get some news. What do you think? Sounds pretty good. I'll... <laughs> oh, God. Um, I could go full Canadian on you guys if you really want me to. Oh, do it once. Yes, just do it once, once, Dan. Give us some full Canadian. All right, on. We'll be reading some news here, eh, you hosers? Take off. <laughs> oh man well straight from uh tim horton's uh donut shop we've got uh dan he's gonna read us some news that's right that's my uh new york accent you know for uh, all my families from you know from new york we're italian so give it to us straight buddy <laughs> all right not a lot of news to talk about this week but we just want to make sure everyone's aware last week we got a brand new ebook novella uh, from authors Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman, the new Deep Space Nine Rules of Accusation, uh, which is, of course, a Deep Space Nine novella centering around Quark, just like their last one was. Well, this is, should be exciting. I Now, the blurbs out there, and you probably, if you're listening to the show, you probably already have the book, so we don't want to give anything away to anyone, but I had, I remember I had a blast talking about the first one with... Chris, and so I'm super excited to dive into this one and kind of see where it goes. So um, I'm looking forward to our show next week. Definitely, yeah. Uh, like you say, if the last one was any indication, this is going to be a lot of fun. So always a, a always a good ride coming from these two here. Who doesn't like a good Quark book? I mean, come on, especially if it's an ebook, you know it's going to be good. It's the perfect 
medium for a quark story, and I'm really looking forward to this one. It's going to be quirky. <laughs> you know, you know what I dislike though about the e novellas about quark is that every three pages you have to give a new slip of latinum. It's just so frustrating. So I just wish this book was available on CD-ROM. Oh, oh man, the puns are flowing tonight. Wow. Goodness. I'm nogging in approval. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm sitting over here racking my brain, nog pun, nog pun. Darn it. Oh, you beat me to it. <laughs> oh, gosh, guys. Uh, well, no, I mean, I think you're right, Bruce. The, the medium for e-novellas is, is fantastic i've really enjoyed that it, with the star trek book line and you know i'm disappointed that they haven't done well enough for them really to want to continue to do as many as they had been doing so i'm encouraging everybody go out and get this one read it one because we're going to be talking about it on the show so you're going to want to have read it uh and two support the ebook medium this way for these stories that only get released in that format because I love getting to sit down for an hour or so and just read through one of these stories and have it be a full, complete story. And that's what these ebooks allow you. In, in fact, it it really feels as most as much like episodic television as you can get without actually watching an episode of Star Trek. And that's what I like about them. They're they're just bite size, and uh, it takes about an hour, hour and a half. And you get yourself a, a fun story about the characters you really like. So and it's, go check it's good out. to read, too, because it's good for your noggin. Oh, man. <laughs> but yeah, no, like like the last book really was like one of the really good Ferengi episodes. You know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, the magnificent Ferengi as opposed to Prophet and Lace. You know, one of the good ones. No, you're you're right. And... That's what's really fun about this, too, is that, you know, I feel like uh, for the most part, Quirk's kind of been sidelined in the main story. So it's nice to see what he has been up to. Uh, and I think that, you know, this is a good way to kind of fill in some of those gaps about characters we don't see much. In fact, you know, we were talking about this before, Dan. We haven't really seen a lot of O'Brien. So that was one of the reasons it was great to get into force in motion because finally he came to the forefront you know uh and some of these characters i i would say specifically on deep space nine uh we've been losing it maybe we should start an ebook series for aventine hmm. what do you guys think about that because we haven't seen yes. a lot of aventine yeah. action i, I, I would definitely buy into that for sure me too i'm there i'm cashing in on that one i would love to see a series of aventine books and and I what, what would be great about it is, one, we get more Aventine covers, hopefully, and more Esri Dexon covers, because I can never have enough Nicole DeBoer on a front of a cover. I, I You will find us very hard-pressed to argue against that one. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I didn't want to have to fight you guys. It's really hard to do over this much distance. So, um, <laughs> Well, Dan, that is all that we do have in news. Let everybody know real quick just uh, some of the places that they can find uh, the show before we head into the feature where we're going to talk about the brand new Captain to Captain Legacies Book One. Well, you can find Literary Treks anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, if you're an Apple user, of course, you're using the iTunes. When you grab it on there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. That really helps people find us. Uh, and if you're not an Apple user, you can find us 
just about anywhere. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream the stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link there as well. And that goes for all the shows on the Trek FM network, not just literary treks. If you want to get into contact with us, we have a form on our website at trek.fm contact. You can leave us a voicemail there as well. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. We're on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. While you're on Facebook, also check out the Babel Conference, our listeners-only group. Just type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Special for Literary Treks, of course, we have the Goodreads group, where you can find bookshelves with all of the books we've previously covered on the show, as well as what we're currently reading so you can stay up to date for the new episodes that come out. And of course, there are always great conversations happening there about all the books and comics. Well, guys, uh, we are starting a brand new series tonight, which I am excited about, because I love when we have a a trilogy of books and to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, Simon and Schuster have decided that the best way to do that is with a trilogy of books that are covering the original series. And we got some uh, interesting tie-ins. This, this series is called Star Trek Legacies. And we are going to be discussing book one by Greg Cox tonight called Captain to Captain. And so... I wanted to ask you guys, you know, just we're beginning a new series. And, you know, when you get a trilogy in Star Trek books, kind of what are some of the things that you do expect when you dive into one of these trilogies? Well, yeah, I mean, these trilogies, I I often find that the first book has, you know, a big job to do. And that's to, you know, kind of launch this story and you know, make it feel like something epic that you're going to get involved in. You know, I'm thinking back to even some of the earliest uh, big multi-book adventures in pocketbooks, and I think Invasion from the 90s was kind of the first really big one that I can remember that was multiple authors doing one story. And there's always kind of this, just a bit of expectation that goes along with it, because you you figure it's going to be something big, it's going to be something epic, you've got multiple authors involved, you know, you've been waiting kind of most of the year to get it. It's going to be big. That's that's kind of my biggest expectation going in. It's going to be big. It's going to be huge. It's <laughs> going to be the best series we've ever had. We have that, some that's very, how Trump very it, right? good stories here. <laughs> Sorry. We only chose the best words, the, the, the biggest words, the hugest words. Right, Bruce? Yo, I, you, I know what you're saying. It's something big. Um, yeah, but... I try not to go into these with high expectations. Uh, I've learned that through a very, not just novels, but movies or whatever. If, if anything's celebrating an anniversary or a return, I try not to put it. Oh, I'm, I'm mentioning pedestal again. I mentioned that earlier. I'm trying. I don't put these on a pedestal, so I try not to go in these with any expectations. Like, oh, this is going to be big, or this is going to be epic, epic. Because sometimes um, you could start off a story and it's just the setup for the other two books or it's very character focused. And so it's not epic, but it's really diving deep into uh, a character or two. So I try not to think about it, but going into the 50th anniversary and knowing that that was on uh, the cover of this, I did go in with high expectations, but 
tried to keep them at bay as best as I could. So I wouldn't be disappointed if it didn't meet that expectation. No, I, I think that's really, you know, something that going into this, obviously they were pushing that this is the 50th anniversary and this was their way of celebrating. And so my thought process had to be, I feel like it had to be, I almost forced to feel like that this is going to be something big and epic destiny. Like now when I say that, I mean the sense that you're going to feel like it was a way of celebrating star Trek as big as destiny did, but not the same type of story. Y'all, y'all see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that there's that expectation as I'm going this and, and two, since it is the beginning of the series, um, you know, I always go into one of these books. I want to be hooked and it needs to do you pretty early because you also want to feel like you want to read the rest of the books. You know, you, you feel like they need to do that. So I'm with you guys in the sense that I feel like this book carried a lot of weight to it. It had a lot to do and whether or not that would live up to that is, is a different story. But yeah, just starting a new series, that's kind of where I am usually, especially if it's in a trilogy. Um, you know, I think it's a little bit harder to do when you're writing multiple authors, most likely, because if you're the, the main, if you're the only author of a trilogy, you, you know exactly what's going on. You know, there's, there's no handoff, there's no nothing. It's coming straight from one person, but you know, this is a lot more difficult, and I've definitely seen that. Bruce, you know this from Star Wars books. You know, when you have those multi-author arcs that they would do, sometimes they work well, and sometimes they don't, you know. So, and sometimes uh, the series can start off a little slow and get better over time, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough road to walk to be the first one out of the gate. And a lot of this story happens... Not to our main characters, but to a character previously known on the Enterprise. So, previously on the spaceship Enterprise. Um, really, the, the book focuses on the character of number one. Or, as they name her here, is Una. Which, I love the fact that they did name her Una, because who doesn't love Una McCormick? We all do. Oh. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask you guys about about just her specifically and what you thought about her characterization because we haven't read at least I haven't and I could just be in you know the, the smaller spectrum here a lot of books with her in it you know um so I wanted just to see how do you feel like she comes off you know especially since she really is the main focus of the book uh Kirk and Spock are very much minor players I really liked a lot of aspects of her character. Um, you know, her confidence that just the, that oozes out of her, uh, isn't something that we get a lot of in characters, just such a, this kind of brazen confidence that she has, but we really get the impression that with her generally it's, it's very earned. Like she's basically, she is number one, right? She's, uh, the best and the brightest from her entire world. And, uh, you know, so it brings an interesting dynamic when, you know, someone not only thinks they're that good, you know, they tend to be that good with the, you know, exception of a few uh, mistakes that obviously happen in this book, which 
I almost wish that we'd have gotten more of a chance to see her for a period of time after this first uh, away mission that kind of ended in disaster and kind of seen how that, what that did to her character and, and what it did to that confidence. Maybe it wasn't quite as on display as it was here. And then we rejoin her years later where, you know, she's after Pike's era and after we've seen her in the cage uh, and a much more seasoned, mature captain but still has that confidence uh I, I thought it was an interesting take on a character one that we don't often get i from my my impression of number one is that she's almost vulcan like and i think they even mentioned that in this book but she didn't come across that way to me in in here um yeah she's very highly intelligent and she makes a lot of good plays and a lot of good moves but i almost expected her to be uh, a little more serious. Now we're going. A lot of the story takes place when she's a lieutenant. This is taking place back when she's serving with uh, Captain April. So we're getting a younger version of Number One. But I think what would have worked for me with her character more is if the crew, if the crewmen reacted to her in a in a way that we see crewmen act to Spock. Like maybe they kind of rib Spock because he's so logical and so smart. I almost wish they would kind of done that with her just so that she, so it's almost seen through the other crewman's eyes that she's this very highly intelligent person to the point that she almost doesn't quite fit in, but she fit in too well with them. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying from my impression of number one, I always thought that she may not always fit in with the crew because she is this highly intelligent number one person. So that didn't come across in this book for me, uh, but she was quite an interesting, entertaining character. I mean, it wasn't like she was somebody that I was bored with. I mean, she, she was getting the job done, and uh, I enjoyed following her journey. I think the thing that struck me about this book is that I felt like it needed to be pretty much a story that happened through her character's perspective for most of the book like the mo that most of this first book should been more about her and less about anything having to do with Kirk and Spock that they would only play a minor role until maybe the second book because what I, I feel like you needed is you needed a whole book basically to build her character so it makes more sense who she is and what she can do instead of it feeling like um, narrative cheats you know, we're going to tell you she's good at everything, but that gives us the deus ex machina to get her out of just about anything because, well, she's so brilliant, you know? Honestly, she's a Mary Sue because you haven't written her in a way that allows her, me to have seen her not be that because she's just the character who can do whatever she needs to do, but without any context to it other than you just told me she can not I haven't shown me so if you had spent the whole book showing me who this character is, and really I feel like because this is a cool series it would have been really interesting to explore this character that we really don't know all that well for most of this book and just have the end part be where Kirk and Spock show up so that we've really built a whole story around her and that she feels like a fully realized character instead of a bunch of literary tropes thrown together. And I, I, I know that sounds kind of harsh, but I think when you really look at the book, 
that's kind of what it is. And it's a little frustrating because I think she is a really interesting character and somebody I'd want to know more about, but I don't find her interesting right now because it's just not as well written as it needs to be to make me her, her believable, as believable as she needs to be. Because two, when she makes a decision later on to do what she did, I don't know her well enough other than say, that's probably a really bad command decision. And she's supposed to be a captain in Starfleet. Kirk would not do what she's doing. And when he does do what she does, kind of, in Star Trek Three, there's a very long history of who Kirk is and why he's doing it. I have no history with her or any of these other characters. So it just, it doesn't really pay off as it should. And so I think all of that is just my real frustration with her as a character. And the story in general is there's just a lot of corners that were cut. And so the resolution to the story and the big buildup, to me, it just kind of falls flat. And that's disappointing because she really is the focus of the story. I feel like we get a little bit of the of kind of what you're talking about with uh her lieutenant days under captain april and i mean i kind of really wish that was more fleshed out as well that we kind of get that backstory but at the same time i also you know if you don't have kirk and spock kind of bookending this story i feel like a lot of people would put it down very early (laughs) me you know and maybe that's just a failing of the format of star trek novels you know there's there's you know if you're doing a trilogy for the original series and you open it up and you don't see kirk and spock on page one that might be you know kind of off-putting to a lot of people which is unfortunate because i i agree i would have liked to have gotten more of this build-up maybe more of in a chronological way starting with her early days having this crisis and then um showing the modern day and and what's coming but at the same time, I do kind of like the surprise that we get when she all of the sudden, you know, breaks in and steals it and takes off and nobody knows what the heck, like, why is she doing this? You know, so there's there's kind of something to be said for both, I think. I think that's where I'm getting with this, too, is I, I think I just wanted to know more, more about her. And I think that's why I was saying about getting uh, to know what the uh, learning about her through the crew members and maybe having more of that time of them on the ship together, building the relationships before going on the mission. But of course, I don't think we have time for that in this novel. I don't think this is this series is a number one series of books. I think she's just part three of this story as it's setting up in the other two books. So they're not going to spend a whole lot of time building her character. The thing about this being a 50th anniversary and one reason why I wasn't going in with any, trying not to go in with high expectations is because in the 40th anniversary, we had the Crucible books. And those digged, mm-hmm. r- those yeah. dug really deep into the characters, and especially the first book with McCoy. And then, of course, then the Spock and the Kirk book. And th- I know we're not going to get that this time around. And even back in the 40th anniversary, when I read Crucible, I thought, man, this is what they should have saved for 10 years from now for the 50th anniversary. So, um, but then we don't want to have a 50th anniversary that focuses on a minor character we don't know much about. It has to focus on the main character. So I'm hoping that this is the setup to get us to the Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the rest of the crew in the next two books. 
Well, see, and and that's where, you know, I I completely understand what you're saying, Dan, and it does make sense. And it is unfortunate that um, the public uh, of Star Trek wouldn't be up for this. When the series is called Legacies, what expects some freaking legacy? And um, wouldn't the legacy be awesome to have us spend pretty much an entire book on the Robert April Enterprise, which we've only seen him and that's what I liked mm-hmm. in this book. I loved Robert April. I love the kind of grandfatherly approach to being a captain. So that was the part I was really digging. I was I was digging getting to know that character and and the characters and even number one in those early days. It's it's the problem of that we don't really spend you know we just didn't spend enough time there. And I I feel like that's a better use of the word legacies. Because if we're talking about this passing from captain to captain, well, I kind of almost expect the story to be more about, well, we pass it from April to Pike, then to Kirk, you know, or something like that. Whereas they're really just jumping the gun, if you ask me, to get to this, well, we got to have Kirk and Spock. Well, that's that's pandering to a bad audience, you know. I mean, we're talking about hardcore Star Trek fans who are reading Star Trek novels, for the most part, and yes, and I know Dayton has said many times on the show he wants everybody who reads the book to feel like that they're welcome. But let's welcome people into learning about Robert April, like and number one, and these characters and everything. So I think that's where I just feel like they missed a golden opportunity to do something really special, and instead it it just and. <sighs> Yeah, really, it was just, it was the frustration and the characterization for number one. I think she suffered because there wasn't enough time spent there. And I do not throw around the term Mary Sue at all. That's not a term I just throw out at any character. Um, There are a lot of characters that are in things, but it, it, it... I felt like it was a little bit justified because she's she's just not as developed as she needs to be. I wanted to ask you, too, because this is an interesting thing that we get. We get slugs, legitimately, slugs, as as aliens, which we haven't seen a lot of in Star Trek. But I wanted to ask you about the Nazi slugs and what you guys kind of thought about them as, you know, being these characters who have been able to transport themselves from universe to universe through this transfer key. What did you think about them as kind of villains here for this story i really liked the alienness of them and i think you know the fact that they seem to come from a universe in which they may be the only sentient race out there uh i think it's a really interesting concept and a really kind of it's a neat idea that really shapes their perspective And it kind of makes sense that, you know, they would think of any kind of outsider as, you know, a threat or something to be afraid of, Um, you know, to the point where they want to take over the entire universe, basically, because, you know, everything that isn't them that's sentient is a threat or maybe not even seen as sentient. It's it lends a really interesting perspective to them, I think. Well, the fact that they were slugs, I don't know why I couldn't get out of my head Kang and Kodos from The Simpsons. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're not quite, I mean, they're not quite like that, but I just kept picturing these these blobs going around and they have like really one foot to move around. 
but at first I, I, I was having a hard time picturing them at, at, as slugs, but you know, they're, they're bigger than humans and not tremendously bigger, but slightly bigger than humans. And I thought it was an interesting take because, you know, so many Star Trek aliens are in a human form. And so this was different. And that's the thing I like about having the novels. You can expand on what you might not have the budget to do in a TV series. So I like the fact that these, I could picture what they look like because it relates to something that we have on earth and that's slugs. And so I can kind of justify how they, how they might look. And I like the fact that they look very alien like. I liked all the alienness of them. God, I hate doing this, but I really feel like, again, uh, just kind of having them come out and be one so one-dimensional uh, was really frustrating because we don't spend a lot of time with them. And so, you know, when we end up having them be kind of one-dimensional villain-type race, except for the one lone scientist, it's so generic Star Trek that it's not, there's nothing original there. You know, we've seen that in a thousand different episodes. You know, well, we have 729 episodes of Star Trek. Uh, be, you'd be hard-pressed not to find at least 150 of them that have this plot, is my guess, <laughs> somewhere in there. Um, so your problem is that this book reads like a Star Trek episode. <laughs> my problem is, is that it doesn't feel original at all like it just feels like something that it felt like paint by number star trek I, I just hate to say that i really do you guys know how much i love these books but um i'm just being real honest with where i came down with the book and um I, it, part of that was the fact that the aliens were so one note you know and there are some nice parallels that they do here but the parallels, too, were very, I felt like, generic. I mean, you have the Jator, I think is how you would say it. Those are the slug race. And the Asilidar. And the Asilidar are being persecuted and made to be a workforce by the Jator. That's why I basically called them space Nazis. The first time that, number one... And her crew land on this planet. They end up meeting some Isildar. And they're helped out by one of them. And they're enabled, and it enables them to, you know, be able to, to kind of figure out what's going on. This youth helps them, rescues them, and becomes their friend. And, yeah, and that's something we've seen before. And then, of course, I knew that that character would come back to play later because you don't spend time on things that you're not going to use later. So... Uh, and just the, I think the whole thing there was a little bit um, frustrating. I guess the really most interesting parallel, Dan, you had mentioned in our notes, was the idea that the Chator are very fearful of outsider anybody's that not one of them, and they kind of pass that to the Sildar, who become very much like that later on in the book, which you know, I mean, after their experience makes some sense. To me, that felt like kind of the tragedy of this book and something that I, I hope we get a little bit more exploration or maybe, you know, resolution to in future books is, you know, the, the kind of state that 
the Jator have left uh, the planet of Usild, I'm going to call it in. Um, both, you know, the the ecological state of the planet and the, the state of mind of the people that they've left behind there. Um, you know, I, and we don't get a lot of it here, but the seeds seem to be planted for the idea of, you know, the poisoning of this culture, basically, against anything outside or anything uh, different. So they've become as paranoid as the Chator were kind of thing, which, you know, again, I suppose isn't a very original concept, but, you know, I felt was kind of an interesting statement to be making here that, you know, it's not just the physical damage to the planet that you have to worry about. It's the psyches of the people and the, the, the invisible scars that have been left behind by their occupation. Uh, as opposed to just the physical ones. Yeah, I think they... Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, as we get further into the other books, uh, the way that this this race on this planet, the Ucillars, react the way they do now because of what happened with the uh, Jator, that we'll find out later that the Jator are acting the way they're doing because something happened back on their planet. Now, it... I think I rem if I remember correctly, they haven't really experienced another alien race before. This is their first time exper experiencing an alien race, but maybe something else happened on their planet to the point that they're very skittish about the aliens they meet on this planet and the way they're acting, just like the Yasildar are. I don't know. I'm just I'm kind of taking what you're saying and processing it as you're talking, and and because I haven't really thought through that uh all that much but that that it definitely is an interesting take i like that mm -hmm. well they did actually mention and and I'm, this is just kind of coming back to me as we're talking here they did mention that they left their realm or their universe because they um because of a disaster or something like something made them leave yeah uh, there was something i don't remember i don't think they called it out but yeah i think you're right yeah, and I, I feel like maybe that's kind of planting the seeds for uh, something very much like what you're you're saying here. Like, that's something we might learn about in the future here. And I hope that that will be the case. I really do. I hope that this this plays out well in the next two books. Uh, that the, the, the setup um, was the start, and then it'll kind of work its way out in, in the other two novels. Because I, I feel like so far far with it you know it's kind of good it, it's like a quaint you know classic star trek story but I, I didn't feel like too i wish that those things were explored or just a, they had more depth to them and because i think that would have helped um and maybe it's just the the tragedy of being the first book in a series you know so you just don't get to do that um and, and that's the frustration that you come up against maybe even as the author greg you know, you don't get to really pay off a lot of what you're doing. And so that, that can be frustrating. We come down to, because, you know, you've got this transfer key in this. Uh, they connect that with the Tantalus field for the mirror universe. And was that maybe a transfer key? So they raised that question. Would, I mean, was that not really like uh, annihilating people? Was it sending them to another universe? And. So I wanted to ask you guys uh, first, you know, just kind of what you thought about that idea kind of completely changing the idea we might have from the mirror universe uh, that's a big change 
that was kind of i mean when when they first described in the book where kirk was hiding the transfer key i was like hey wait a minute (laughs) this sounds really familiar i was like okay yeah i i see what they're doing here and then yeah that idea that the tantalus field might just be sending people to a different universe now this is where it gets really interesting to my mind and this might not be true at all maybe i'm just whatever here but did they send those people to the same place that they sent the people from number one's away team or sorry original series landing party (laughs) so are we going to be in a bunch of are we going to see like mirror sulu somewhere (laughs) that's exactly (laughs) what i I was wondering too (laughs) but maybe you know that would be that would be an interesting twist I would love to see that. I'm actually hoping for that. If that doesn't happen, okay, fine. But if it doesn't happen, I think that's a great idea for another book somewhere. Just, you know, all these crewmen being wiped out of the mirror universe because of the Tantalus field, and now we go and we find out where they went. You know, I mean, it would just be so cool to see that. I really do hope it it works in here. That would be uh, a nice tie into the mirror universe, and we find out that, because I always assume they, you know, they're just, they're dead, they're gone, they've been wiped out, but no, they could be somewhere else, and we find them in the later books. Who knows? Well, and and that's, that's an interesting thing, too, because, you know, just the idea of this transfer generator you know this transfer field with this transfer key you know this is one of the things too where number one's plan really bothered me because really 18 years later you just expected them to kind of be waiting for you like it was just a really bad plan you know um and that was what was frustrating to me she's supposed to be super smart but her plan's really dumb (laughs) um and that was really it's like you were maybe it's not really dumb maybe you're just not smart enough to see the logic behind it it it, uh, that's i mean (laughs) it's a possibility i'm i'm not gonna say that's a high probability uh but i i feel like let's just put it okay so kirk knows from sarek that mccoy has spock's katra and that he can get the body of spock there's a good chance that spock himself can be that could come back from the dead. It's it's not quite all there, but it's mostly there. So it's a lot more to go on than 18 years later, I've been studying this on my off time. It's finally time to risk my captaincy for these people that the reader doesn't know anything about. Uh, so I think, again, that was the point. It's like if you had spent time with those characters for, you know, 10 chapters really getting to know them and number one, the relationship she has with them and everything, all of this would mean so much more and it just, it doesn't. And um, so I, I think the transfer key and the, the idea of the Santos field, I'm super excited about hopefully the idea of it, it meaning more like, you know, and that's kind of a huge retcon for <laughs> the, uh, the mirror universe too, because you do change the, the tone of those episodes, if you're thinking in the back of your head, oh, well, they're just going to another universe, you know, instead of, oh, they're being annihilated painfully. Well, maybe the other universe is like hell, and and so the mirror universe is sending them to their ultimate doom. You never know. So they all land on Mustafar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. And they become dark lords of the Sith. Okay, yeah, there we go. I, I really like, and I mean, I maybe I'm reading way more into this book than than what's there but 
I, there, to me, it was interesting that, you know, number one is so logical and so intelligent. And I, I think it would be Spock would be the first one to say, you know, what's driving her right now is emotion. And that's why that's what makes her different from, you know, a Vulcan uh, is that she's being driven to take what I think we can all agree are fairly illogical actions uh, based on her emotion. And Matthew, I think you're absolutely right. Maybe unwarranted given the amount of time we spend with them in this, in this novel, maybe, um, you know, we don't feel it. We weren't allowed to feel the way she feels about these characters, which is unfortunate. You know, I really wish that there was more time devoted to that. But I'm I'm wondering if there might be some observation to be made about, you know, emotion versus logic and kind of Spock at some point saying, well, you know, see, this is why this is why no emotion, because you, you go nuts, you go crazy. It doesn't work. Well, it may have worked better for you if if they would have if he would have focused more on the number one character's anguish about these characters. I mean, we can learn, there's not enough time maybe to learn so much about these characters that we care about them, but we need to feel that she really cares about them. There's something Mm -hmm. about them that she's carrying this guilt around and we really start to feel for her. And we realize that she needs to do this because this has affected her life in some way. Maybe she can't have, uh, a healthy relationship with other people because she's been, you know, holding this guilt or maybe her career's on been on hold because she just, she, she just can't seem to focus, but she, about what happened, how she feels the guilt of, of losing these crewmen. And, and now she's at a place in her life where she can correct the wrongs and make them right and then move on with her life. But it didn't go that way. It's, she had a very, very good career. Everything's hunky dory. Everything's going well. And then after 18 years, she's like, well, you know, now that I figured out, I'm going to go and I'm going to save them. And I guess it does feel a little shallow when you look at it that way. But I also agree with the fact this is the biggest problem I had was when she finally got there to retrieve them. And they're not in the location that they were sent to 18 years earlier, as if they're all just sitting there in a circle singing Kumbaya. Wait, oh, good. She's finally here after 18 years. And I kept thinking, well, what did she? I got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Where did she expect them to be? Like, you know, you you can't go to the bathroom. You might miss her. Just stay there. Yeah, no, it's nuts. It it makes no sense. And that was frustrating because what else are you going to expect to see when you do it? I, yeah, that part was kind of mind boggling to me. You know, of course they're not there. Why are you so upset now that they're not there? Like, were you really expecting them to be there? Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. I like the, the idea of like the logic there uh, against emotion. But again, it's not played out mm-hmm. in the story. And, and, you could have easily have kind of gone there uh, of the underlying emotion of a character like number one and the the way that that's kind of taken over her more logical side and in some ways uh, mirroring Spock. But, you know, there's just none of that. And that's a little bit frustrating. So on top of that, it was interesting because the question of like the prime directive and and you know, Starfleet stops the tour, but the Sildar are kind of left with this really broken planet that, I mean, we stopped the bad guys and I mean, you get the feeling like their ecosystem is able to go back to normal. 
once you know the the tour had been stopped. So did the I mean did Starfleet have any obligation at all to kind of help them return the planet's atmosphere and, and environment to its rightful state, or did they do the right thing by just you know letting it run its course? Yeah, this is I mean. This this is something that I think very obviously is going to be picked up in a future book because they've set that that uh, ticking clock in motion, right? Like the planet is going to be uninhabitable at some point because of what happened here. Um, so I feel like this is going to get addressed. And yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, you know, a very strict reading of the Prime Directive as we get in some of the television episodes would be well, we can't do anything. That's that's the, I don't know, some sort of ineffable destiny of the universe is that this is, you know, but then it happened because of another race interfering. So what does that do to the equation? Like, is that still part of the, you know, grand plan that Riker talks about in Pen Pals, for example? You know, I I think the argument could almost be made either way. Personally, as my personal belief would be, yeah, I think you should try and save the planet because I believe that all life should be preserved. But, you know, then the counter argument to that is then Starfleet becomes a police service that goes around the galaxy saving planets. And yeah, I don't know. That's <laughs> it's it's one of, you know, if you really get into it, it could be one of the great prime directive arguments that we've gotten over the years. Yeah, and that's what I like about this. It made me wonder why Starfleet wasn't involved and why they're keeping the key a secret from Starfleet. Do they not trust Starfleet with this power? And if it's such great power, why is it being hidden on a ship for, for two decades? Um, but the fact, one thing I liked about this is that you have one alien race invading a planet that affects the ecosystem of this planet and affects another alien race, which takes me back to a book we reviewed a few episodes ago on the rise of the Federation about how the interference of races on other planets affect the ecosystem. And it, it took me back to that. So I like the, I like that I could connect this to another book, even though that probably wasn't the intent, but uh, I like when I read Star Trek novels and I see parallels and connections between other books, whether the intent was there or not. So that was pretty cool to me, but I do feel that uh, Starfleet should get involved because this planet was invaded by another race of beings and helped to destroy a lot of the ecosystem and it hasn't been fixed. And so I think it is Starfleet's job to help them out. Well, and I almost feel like it, by Starfleet not doing anything, you did allow these people to become paranoid, you know, protectionist type people instead of coming in and being alongside them, helping them clean up their planet. Uh, you know, they've already had the the prime directive shattered for them in the sense of they already know there's there's other things out there. Uh, and at this point, we can come, we can step in as the Federation, not play God or anything, but say, oh, we, we can help you clean up that mess. You could become a protectorate, basically, uh, mm -hmm. of the Federation and that kind of thing. And I think that would have been a wiser move because, like, like we mentioned, you know, the, these people have ju just become as 
fearful and paranoid of outsiders as the Tor were, and I think that's because, you know, you know, if Starfleet had come alongside, that wouldn't have happened. You know, they wouldn't have a need to feel like that because they would have realized, oh, everybody in the galaxy is not like this, you know? Um, and so negate that bad experience with a good experience. And um, I think the Prime Directive here is a little bit iffier. It's not just cut and dry because of what's happened. You know, it's a case-by-case basis. It's, it's not just a black-and-white law of the Federation. So I would have liked to have seen that. And maybe that'll come play, play in more. We have no idea. But I, I think it would have been a little bit more interesting to see that play out that way. Mm-hmm. Another thing it really reminded me of was uh, Mystico from the Mere Anarchy ebook series that we talked about uh, a while back there. You know, kind of the idea that, you know, if something isn't done, if Starfleet doesn't step in, you know, this world will be lost and all the people on it will be destroyed. And, you know, to kind of echo some of the other people arguing in that room in pen pals, which I think is just, you know, the quintessential prime directive debate, you know, that can't be better for the galaxy at large to lose all the voices on this planet, you know, every planet and every ecosystem is unique and that should be preserved, I think. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting, interesting dilemma that they find themselves in. And like, let's not forget Starfleet, like Bruce mentioned, has been completely kept out of this decision. They don't even know that, you know, there's a problem going on here because, you know, they haven't been privy to everything that happened there. And now it's in Klingon space. So that further complicates matters. Yeah. So let me ask you guys this. So the decision was made by Captain April to keep the key hidden on the Enterprise and not share this this information or share the key with Starfleet. And then it was passed on to Pike, which was passed on to Kirk. But I really didn't understand. I mean, I know he was trying to protect the power, but... What was your impressions on the motivation behind hiding this from Starfleet? That's a tough one. I mean, you know, on the face of it, I think it's it's basically standing in for, you know, like we get the title, the legacy of the Enterprise, the idea that the Enterprise has uh, been around for 15 to 20 years before Kirk even stepped on board. And I feel like the authors wanted to give that kind of a personification, like some sort of continuity that's that's gone through from year to year, from captain to captain. But uh, yeah, it, it it forces the characters into some very strange decisions here because I can't I can't really wrap my mind around what exactly the thinking was. So you know the 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 number of times that the enterprise was facing destruction they were just going to lose it there the number of times it was threatened to be boarded by aliens and taken over somehow uh did kirk figure into into it that well i guess they own the key now like was he going to run to his quarters and destroy it like it just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me no it doesn't it just doesn't <laughs> It basically only works as a metaphor, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I understand the whole idea of great power comes great responsibility. Thank you, Spider-Man. Um, but that's uh, this is something that would get just put in the temporal investigations hold and never seen from again. Just like the Shaddai um, metagenome that got locked away. I mean, this is just something that would happen. The, the thought that... 
Captain April thinks that he knows better than Starfleet Command in this one was really just dumb. It's just dumb. I mean, bro, just let them make the decision and somebody will... Again, this is probably where, again, Department of Temporal Investigations would have probably stepped in because it's from a parallel universe. So I don't understand why they weren't called in in the first place to, you know, make sure that everything gets cleaned up correctly and they would take the transfer key and they would go put it in their, you know, special vault and you'd never see it again. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. The, the, the amount of times the Enterprise could be blown up or taken over and all that jazz... It's just, it is kind of pure insanity to think that this weapon is on. And and what it does is it causes the Starfleet to not know about the situation to be able to help the Sildor mm -hmm. or the Sildar. And I think that's a bad call in April's part too. Yeah. Because they don't really, um, because they don't want people finding the Citadel. So, I mean, it's just, it's terrible, awful logic all the way through. And I even, you know, even if April thought that he was the best custodian for this thing and, you know, Starfleet couldn't handle it, when he leaves the Enterprise, why wouldn't he then take that with him? Why why does it have to stay with the Enterprise? And why does the next captain have to be the guardian of it? You know, April's just like, oh, this Pike guy seems like a stand-up guy. I'm sure he'll look after it. Okay, cool. You never have to think about the transfer key again. See ya, Enterprise. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. Yeah. And by the time Kirk gets there, Pike tells him, yeah, you got to keep this key there. Uh, it goes <laughs> to something that we don't know where it is. Uh, we weren't told where it is. It's kind of a secret. Uh, it's not probably good for anything, but just keep it hidden there and, and, and don't use it because you can't anyway. I don't know. As we're talking through it, I started to wonder, well, maybe it was more that um, number one convinced April uh, to keep the key because she is, is her intent is to go back when she figures out how to make it work and she doesn't want to give it to Starfleet because then all hope is lost and so if they hide the key she can take that key and go back and rescue the crew members later it doesn't really make sense that it stays with the ship when they're transferred off but she's so smart I can't figure her out she's got some good plan set aside she's so good I can't figure it out. I think we are giving her way too much credit. Um, so <laughs> Number one works in mysterious ways. Don't question it. <laughs> are you going to start singing you two at me now? Um, <laughs> okay, I got to ask you guys. Um, so we've talked a lot about the book, and I wanted to know where you kind of come down with a rating because I feel like all three of us are in different spots. So I'm really interested to see where we end up. Um, what about you, Dan? Well, I mean, this is this is a tough one because I, I generally enjoyed this book. I got into the story. Um, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more fleshing out of, of the characters, especially the ones that we don't know a lot about yet. There is a lot of good stuff in here that I thought was really interesting. Uh, for one thing, Greg Cox has been writing these books for so long that he has to my mind, the best handle on the voices of Kirk and Spock and the rest of the crew, which we don't really get to see except for Bones a little bit, but um, which is also a bit of a failing on the book's part, I think, personally. But I don't know. It's one of those things you can't do everything for everyone. So I want more focus on the little known characters, but I also want to see our regular crew. 
I don't know. I kind of throw up my hands. I don't know what I want. But um, when Kirk and Spock are fighting their way through the Citadel, the kind of playful banter that they have back and forth between each other was really evocative of some of my favorite moments between the two of them in the series. I'm thinking like when they're infiltrating the Klingon compound in Errand of Mercy and Spock keeps uh, talking about the odds and Kirk says, oh, we might have to do some violence. And Spock says, well, it's distasteful, but I'll do it. You know, it's just that kind of banter back and forth we got here that I really liked. But, you know, maybe I really am reaching for good things in this book. I, I'm really having a hard time kind of settling on a rating. I'm going to have to probably give it three and a half. Um, shoot. Transfer keys is just boring. Uh, three and a half Jator flying aquatic submarine pods. I guess that's what we'll call them. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm with you there, Dan. Uh, I I did enjoy the the pacing of the book. Uh, I thought it, as I was reading it, it was flowing very quickly. It was a it was a quick read for me. Uh, we weren't jumping around from uh, to different characters and different places at once. We were staying with one character for most of the story and just kind of following her story. So I liked that it was a quick read, but I would have liked, yeah, a little more in depth about, uh, some of the characters. Um, but you know, it, it did feel classic Star Trek, not the best, you know, Star Trek out there, but it was kind of a quick fun read for me. So I would give it also three and a half, uh, missing crewmen out of five. I don't know what that half crewman looks like, but it's, uh, Ooh, yeah, that's, that's not to think about it. <laughs> For me, this this book was frustrating, and uh, I think I may have done uh, a little too eloquently uh, some of my frustrations with it on the show. This really is a, a I'd have to say this is really 2.5 out of 5 magically appearing citadels. I think we did not spoil the ending for you, and I don't want to spoil the ending for you because I think that's the best part of the book. The last, like, two pages are really the best part, and they set up an interesting premise for the rest of the story. But that's the only part of the story in which I was actually keenly interested in once I realized we weren't really going to get the the depth of character with number one and, and the April character and everything like that that I, I kind of hoped for and, and would have wanted to see to really make the book have a little bit more weight to it in the end and have have more interesting character work. So, uh, you know, let's just, uh, for me, hope that some, um, you know, book two and three uh, really take the series in an interesting direction. And, I mean, they have a great opportunity because... The last few sentences of the book really do set up something, well, as a friend of mine would say, fascinating. I really always look forward to getting a chance to talking with you guys about the book's review because a lot of times you guys make me see things in the book that uh, I hadn't noticed the first time around. So I feel like these conversations are really helpful uh, and even before I was on the show, I used to really look forward to hearing uh, uh, Matthew, your and Chris's thoughts about 
the novels we read because I, I love the different dimensions that a discussion like this can really bring out. No, I feel the same way. And, and that's what I like about getting to talk with you and, and Bruce about the book because, you know, you brought things out that I didn't think about. And yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great challenge as we kind of go around, you know, the figurative table here and talk about one of these books. And, you know, whether the book is my favorite or not, it's the best part to get to hear what you guys thought and um, challenge than what I thought. And, you know, isn't that part of uh, being a more well-rounded person in general? And so I love that you guys help uh, sharpen and, and change my opinion sometimes for the better or for the worse, depending on <laughs> where we, we think about and what we think about the book, you know? And I just want to say that I appreciate the fact that you guys are so honest about what you think of books and uh, are very fair about it and uh, aren't jerks. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah well and i think that's one of the things you know any of the criticism laid against the book here i think um any of us and all of us also mentioned well this is what i would have done to alleviate some of that and so i don't think we ever want to come in and just you know willy-nilly trash anything because that's just inappropriate and just mean-spirited and that is not what we're here to do we're here to celebrate star trek books and comics and there's so much to celebrate this 50th anniversary and so i hope that as literary treks continues this year more people will jump on board as associate producers of different shows we have here on trek fm and of course for literary treks we have some great associate producers through patreon we've got well win ken trip brandon shamatola and this guy named bruce gibson uh love these guys for their support of the show and making sure that we get the opportunity to continue to bring this content to you each and every week. And we can't do that without your support. Trek FM is a listener-supported network. And that means we do need your help. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how we can keep bringing all this content to you each and every week. And we really do need your help. So again, go to patreon.com slash trekfm just like all our associate producers have and see how you can make sure that all this wonderful content keeps coming to you and i've got to say i think it's the best stinking star trek podcasting online if i do say so myself now dan when you are not trying to get unstuck from slug ooze you stepped in where can we find you <laughs> well man you know that that ooze is really sticky but uh you know it makes a really cool picture on instagram if you put it in a sepia filter uh, my username on Instagram, incidentally, is at Kurtrats47. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm on Twitter at Kurtrats. Uh, I'm on YouTube at Kurtrats Productions. I've got a bunch of videos there all about, you guessed it, Star Trek, because, you know, what else is important in this world, right? Uh, you can find me on Facebook.com slash Productions. And, of course, you can find me kicking around the Babel Conference talking about, you guessed it, Star Trek. And uh, Bruce, when you're not beaming down official Starfleet emergency escape ladders for your captain, where can we find you? Well, you can find me climbing the walls at StarWarsReport.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And Matthew, when you're not in the swamp swimming with underwater alien creatures, where can we find you? Ah, uh, get off, get off! 
Oh, sorry guys. Uh, I don't really like underwater alien creatures, and they stick to you like octopuses. Ugh. Anyway, uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing the Orb with Chris Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. And I do the general geek show here on the network called the 602 Club. So much fun. I mean, we've talked uh, through recently... Uh, the second Bond movie, we've talked about Batman v Superman's Ultimate Edition. I did that with Bruce, so you need to check that episode out. And we talked through both of the Independence Day films as we in America just celebrated Independence, the original Brexit. So be sure to check that out. Uh, and I also do a show called Aggressive Negotiations with my friend John Mills. It's a Star Wars podcast, so much fun. Check that out on the nerdparty.com or, of course, on iTunes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.